next guest on Tea Time with me, Ali Monjack, is Louise Chandler. She's worked for over 20 years as a media and communication specialist, which includes broadcasting at the BBC TV and radio, as well as consulting the Prince's Trust, Superdrug and Afro Business Expo. Last year, she represented the Barbados and Friends Association and spoke at the Houses of Parliament about the Windrush generation and her Barbadian heritage. Lou currently works as marketing and corporate communications for Oxford County Council and writes various blogs. She is passionate about championing black women and their achievements all year round. Lou is somewhat of an inspiration and shares what Black History Month means to her and how race is everybody's business. Let's find out more. So welcome to Tea Time. So Lou, it's really lovely to see you. It is Black History Month this month, October. And um, what what does Black History Month mean to you? I think as someone who... um lives in Berkshire and was born in in the UK but um, my parents originate from Barbados and I think over the years of growing up and hearing about Black History Month I think it's become more relevant to me as I've got older Um, and dare I say you kind of look at role models um, or you look at history and you think okay so at school you learn about um, Tudors and King Henry VIII and his wives and Mm. learn about the world wars and okay that's great but as I grew older I started to think something's missing and I started to hear various names that have been brought up more and more, like Mary Seacole and Walter Toll. And I, it made me then quite curious to look into them. So I think over time, Black history has become something that has become, for me, more inclusive and more representative of Black people, where you talk about war and you talk about Florence Nightingale. And more and more, I'm really pleased to hear that names like Mary Seacole are being put forward as contributing towards that part of history. Um, Same goes, you know, before we know it, we're into Remembrance Sunday and you talk about um, the armed forces who fought in the world wars and conflict and more and more as years go on, I'm hearing about the contribution from the Commonwealth and from the West Indies and they and, you know, the vital role that they played and then how that led to then the Windrush era who kind of came over to the UK to help the country restart again after they, the country was rebuilding after the world war. I'm a real kind of geek, I say, because I love history. I visit um, National Trust places. Whenever I go on holiday, I love a tourist attraction. I love a tour. I love to find out more about things. So to hear more accounts of history, I think is only going to help us really appreciate that history is wider than just the kind of um, narrative we get taught at schools. Absolutely. And it is also about, you know, our ancestors as well and where we came from and what stories, you know, because there is a lot of history. So it's interesting to learn, isn't it? And it helps everybody connect, I think, through history, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, they always say that in order to, it's a saying, in order to appreciate where you're at, you need to look at where you've come from. Um, So it's a real opportunity black history month to kind of put a a line in the sand and say right we're in october 2020 but let's reflect back so let's look back at some of the great pioneers who have contributed to really everyday life so people who have invented day-to-day things that we probably take for granted like traffic lights and light bulbs um Mm. cctv 
Um, I saw a really funny thing the other day on social media about the inventor of CCTV, it was a woman, and the joke was that um, she probably invented it to keep an eye on her husband or boyfriend <laughs> to see where he was, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Um, you know, but you know, it was a black woman who came up with the kind of basics that, of what we now know as CCTV. You know, a black guy in the 20s, I think it was, who came up with um, traffic lights. And it's things like that that, you know, we don't appreciate. And everyone has started somewhere. That's what I admire about history. There's always a journey, there's always a narrative. You know, we have computers now, but you know, I think back to when there was CFAX and <laughs> first mobile phones. Yeah. And there's always, there's always an evolution and things evolve. And in order to really appreciate where we're at now, we've got to look back and see those fantastic minds, creative, scientific um, minds who help to create and contribute to things that we have nowadays. And that includes those from the black communities. Yeah, absolutely. Of course it does. I mean, you know, in my eyes, I don't think Black History Month should just be one month of the year. I think, you know, we should be talking about it all year round. But that kind of leads me on to, you know, our next discussion is, you know, I mean, how far has, you know, um, has things got better, do we think, to do with racism? Are people making uh, an effort? Where are we? What do we need to do to, to stop oh, wow. everything else that is going on? That's a lot of questions. I don't even know yeah, if we can that's a lot of one session. Um, okay, so where are we now? This year has been really, I think, important in terms of diversity and inclusion and representation. Um, and I think it took for a person to lose their life in horrific circumstances, George Floyd, to have his neck knelt on and fear. I think George Floyd's death has represented that it was a visible, very visible representation of someone losing their life in such a tragic way. And mainly and pretty much predominantly because of his race, yeah. how he was treated. And that has really this year made the world stand up and go, hang on a minute, this isn't right. Now we knew it wasn't right for a long time, but to see it in such a way, and then to see how that rippled throughout the world in terms of protests, rallies, marches taking place, you know, from Paris to India, everywhere. I think there was that real common question of, wow, this can't continue. And I think when we talk about where are we at now with it, we still got a long way to go. Um, However, what his death, I think, has come to signify and represent is that it's opened up the discussion and debate about race. I think it's making people more comfortable to ask questions and to say, actually, this isn't right. And why is this still happening? And it doesn't always need to be something as violent and grotesque as what we saw with George Floyd. No. It could be microaggression stereotypes it could you know I'm reading articles still about for example a really unwell-known black barrister who you know is very senior in his role and he'll be in court ready to defend a client of his and someone will ask him what is he there for because there is an assumption that he is the kind of perpetrator and he always has to correct them and put his wig on and say actually I'm here I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lawyer it's like, oh are you you know, we're still hearing this happening in 2020. However, what I've noticed this year is we're talking about it more. We are actually signposting and saying this isn't right for this reason. And I think it's people are braver in two instances. Um, 
I sense as a people, we are braver to talk about it because we feel like people are going to receive it and listen more. And I think allies are being braver to actually call out and say, this isn't right. When we see the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol that was pushed over, I'll never forget seeing that in the summer. And it was white and black people rolling it into the river. Yeah. yeah. To yeah. me, you think, wow, this isn't just as a people saying we're sick of being treated differently in inequalities. There were allies and non-black people pushing that statue into the river as well. I know there was a debate about if that was the right thing to do or not. <laughs> but, you know, that teach uh, to me, out of all of what's happened this year, that is a real symbol of where we're, where we're at. We're questioning these people from slavery and saying, should they still be held, you know, held up in society as key leaders, statues? You know, who are these people? What role did they play? How does that have an impact now? Do we get rid of it? Do we have it as a, as a signifier of what is wrong with society then? And how can we learn from it now? All of this has been brought up. I've never seen anything like it in my living days. And I think that's where we're at now. Which is a good thing. I mean, apparently the statue has now been moved, hasn't it, to a museum. And I suppose in a way that signifies just how disgusting that man was, you know. And it does, it does. And I think it also signifies, um, I mean, for example, I've been to Bristol plenty of times, walk past that statue, I didn't know. And this is where we come to history. I'm still learning about history and still learning mm -hmm. about these kind of key figures. And I'm, I'm very well aware of the um, um, slave trade and the role that Bristol played because it's a port city. I was aware of that, but I didn't know about Edward Colston. So to me, I'm still learning. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, right. Didn't realize. Um, so, you know, um, I, I never expect everyone to be, you know, a walking encyclopedia of history and all the kind of atrocities that were done because never before have we had the opportunity to talk about it on such a wide scale and to be so yeah. open about it, which is what has happened this year. Which I think is, you know, it's a very positive thing moving forward, isn't it? But to let you know, if you didn't know, because I did do a bit of research on it, but apparently this statue had been in question for some time. Mm, it has, um, it has. Yeah. Again, we wouldn't, I don't think that that was a wider issue outside of Bristol for people to know about. So for us, you live in Berkshire, I wasn't aware of that. No. Um, so again, it brought the whole discussion out there about how actually, you're right, it had been questioned for a long time, but I hadn't heard of it. And it, it only, it's only because of the, the sequence of events that that then became a talking point. And then like a Black Lives Matter statue was erected temporarily and all of that. And again, I've never seen these types of things happen. And, and that was great, even though it great. didn't survive. No, in it that didn't survive. <laughs> it didn't survive. It was amazing, wasn't it? It was you a know. brilliant statue. And I think this is the thing, again, there's lots of debates around was it the right thing to do, was it not? Everyone's going to have their own perspective, but I would like to think the main thing that's come out of it is it, people are talking and questioning and saying, is that right or isn't it right? Or why should we have that? Or what is Black Lives Matters? And why was that statue then? What does it signify? That's what it's done. It's made people talk about it. In my day-to-day -day work, you know, um, I'm leading a lot of activities around um, BAME, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic um, activities with, with um, people in the workplace. And the main thing that keeps coming up time and time again is, am I allowed to say? Am I allowed to ask? Can I talk about it? And so by having something so 
visibly significant like a Black Lives Matter statue, it may be polarizing. Some people may agree with it, some may not, but it's getting that conversation for someone to say, what does it mean? Yeah, let's get it out there. Let's talk about it. To try and start some education, some understanding, some empathy, whatever emotion you want to take from it, but let's get talking. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a really important thing, though. I do, don't you? I mean, you know, and and the Black Lives Matter movement is a great movement because, you know, what, what they're trying to do is, is, you know, be a voice, speak out and get people to understand the situation. Mm. But, you know, like anything, I mean, although this has been a groundbreaking year, there's still more that needs to be done. And there is in some way some other divisions, isn't there, with people not understanding how they should mm. perhaps re-educate. I mean, let's face it, all of us, you know, we all suffer from the, the human condition. You know, no one likes to be turned around no, to and said, you need to change your ways. Exactly. We all come, you know, depending where you've been raised, what you've been um, subjected to, we all come with our kind of individual prejudices or kind of preconceived notions. We do. We really yeah. do. Um, and, you know, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that because, you know, I have had a very different upbringing as a girl in West Reading to someone who has grown up in a very rural area, I should say, of the UK. That's yeah. very interesting. I'll never forget when I went to university and my housemates, you know, one of them told me that she came from a village where you know, there was a village shop and most people in the village had a key and you just let yourself in to get some groceries and leave the money. And I was like, what? I've never heard of such a place. Where is this? I come from a place where, you know, they probably have security guards on the shop doors. Very different upbringing. Um, so we all come with our own perceptions in terms of life and how we see life and that's okay. It's then being open to it. I've done some training in recent years about and people with visual and hearing impairments I don't have that within my family and friendship circle, but it taught me how to appreciate if I go into a shop and someone has a visual or hearing impairment, how to still communicate with them. And that's the thing. It's being open to it. I'm not going to be an expert, but I'm open to learning and go, okay, what do you experience in your life? And what can I do? What a little bit that I can learn to communicate with you that doesn't make you feel like an outsider. And the same extends to race. You know, people forget yeah, we are all the same essentially, but we are we do still have those differences. So yeah. And and to, to celebrate those differences, don't you think? And those um achievements as well. Indeed. And this is where I know time and time again, every year for Black History Month, there is a feeling of oh, why do we only get one month a year? And and I kind of look at it in two ways. Um, in a way, yep, absolutely, we only get one month a year, but what is to stop us as a people saying we want to celebrate our knowledge, our culture, our history, our achievements throughout the year? There is nothing stopping that. Yes, we may have that one allocated month of the year, but who's to stop you talking about your achievements or celebrating someone's pioneering work in September, in January, in March? If it's good work all year round, then shout about it all year round. Don't wait for that one month opportunity. Um, I write for a website called Melon Mag, which is all about celebrating women of colour. And mm. I really, in my day to day life, I come across some fascinating women who have these really brilliant jobs. And um, I take pride in writing these articles about these women. I've done them a leading person in theatre and choreography, a leading person I'm due to speak to in fashion, who's a Savile Row tailor, yeah. a lady 
has been involved in English Heritage and Westminster Abbey in terms of buildings and architecture. All these fantastic people. I don't wait till October to do it. I do it throughout the year because their stories have such power and empowerment and inspiration. Any woman, any person of any color or race will read it and go, wow. wow. It just happens. They, have to, they happen to be black and female because that's the website I write for. But equally, they've got fantastic stories. I'm not just going to share them in October. No, I, I agree with you. And I, I do think that, you know, people like you and I are in a sisterhood anyway. You know, we're, we're, we're part of the sisterhood. We really, are. we really are. We really are. And I think, you know, everything I do, obviously because of my background, it's um, my heritage and my culture forms a part of that. Because, you know, a year ago, I was preparing to speak at the Houses of Parliament to do a speech about Black History Month. Um, equally, though, if it's about helping to upskill and empower and support others, I do because I know full well that I am where I am today because I've had people invest their time in me. And that includes people who are black, white, whatever. they're just great people. But yeah, it is. But yeah, I do find that I, I do like to try and, I suppose, um, champion those um, from a BAME background. But equally, yeah, you're right. It's about sisterhood, right? <laughs> Us women have got enough to worry about. And then you add in the extra layer of colour as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's great that, you know, you. there are people like you that, that are very vocal and have no problem speaking out. And I think, you know, for a lot, a lot of us, or a lot of women in the sisterhood, so to speak, are, yeah. you know, don't, perhaps aren't so brilliant at coming forward or discussing their feelings and whatever and you know I think you know the message in that is it, it's incredibly empowering isn't it if you can get up and and talk out about you know your race your life your you know your being a, a sister so to speak yeah absolutely no you're absolutely right and there's a couple of things around that really I mean intersectional intersectionality if I can say it is, yeah. is a is a phrase I've heard more and more this year that you know it's not just about being female it's about being female and black or being female and black and from a certain class and then you add in sexuality and then you add in um um religion for example you know we are as human beings we are complex we aren't just people that you can put and tick one box for and say that's who we are um but with that I think it comes lots of opportunity so for me, I, I suppose I, I do speak out because I, if you, I always hear the saying that, especially around election time, don't complain about the result if you weren't prepared to be part of the, the process. Go and put your ex and vote, you know, stand up and say your opinion, because in my opinion, how can you then complain about the outcome if you didn't help to inform some of those discussions? But where I think people don't speak out, it's because I think without sounding like a victim, as a people and as a race, when for a long time you have experienced discrimination and prejudice at the deepest root in your day-to-day -day life, it's exhausting. I, as much as energetic and as much as I speak out, I get exhausted because when you have experienced certain things, be it systemic racism, racism in a shop, racism in day-to-day -day life, racism in dating it permeates all layers of society so sometimes people don't speak up because I know they are tired and they don't know if it will be met with any kind of welcoming 
reception, if people will really listen, take it on board, if people roll their eyes and go, here we go again, you're talking about slavery. So I think that's why I know some people do not speak out because it's like, well, how is this going to be received? And this is why, where I go back to again this year and how, in a way, I think it's been really positive that people are having these discussions and debates and people are receptive and going, oh, I didn't know it was like that for you. I didn't realise that, you know, certain phrases are insulting to you as a black woman or, you know, the angry black woman um, idea. Where's that come from? Oh, wow. It's, oh, no, I don't like, you know, it's all these types of things that's coming out more and more. Whereas, you know, it is a burden to carry that when you've had it for a long time. And then and then knowing should you speak about it will people care i don't know so i think that's where some of that comes from when people well, don't speak. i i think you need to you need to keep doing it i mean you know we all do and you know i've learned this year as well and you know i i'm definitely an anti-racist as you know um but i've learned you know there's things that you know my have been handed down in in my family as a tradition um, or the way that you speak about things. I mean, yeah. I was on a conference call in Reading not so long ago. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the, um, in fact, Acre, part of Acre were there. Yeah. And I started saying that, you know, I felt really browned off about something. And then I thought, <laughs> oh my God, what see, have I just said? No, but you see, the thing is, like you say, there's always slips of the tongue, however, there's two things with that. Firstly, language evolves. There's certain language and phrases that people use in the 50s and 60s that at the time are acceptable and they're not now. And I think it's acknowledging kind of questioning, oh, should I say that? I'm not sure. And language evolves all the time. So sometimes it's tricky to keep up. But if you're mindful of it, it helps. The second thing with what you're saying is that it's the, it's the intention. You, by saying brown off, obviously, we're not meaning anything <laughs> racial. <laughs> that was fed up. <laughs> you just fed up and if I had heard that would I have picked you up on it or not I don't know because I know you I know that your intention is not to be offensive so I know you're just saying it as a way to express that you're fed up however some people might come with the perspective oh you know did she mean to say because they may not know you but if they hear the way that you're saying it and the intention they will know that it's not meant in a malicious way and I think that's how I kind of classify it um okay. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> having said that Lou I won't be saying it again <laughs> and I get that and you know there may be phrases and times when I say something and I have to question myself and go oh you know I shouldn't say that um because that's not but as I say with language evolving all the time you know there was a time where it was okay to call people of mixed heritage half caste that's not acceptable anymore it's mixed race but do people still refer to people as half caste yes they do it's yeah. not acceptable and I know some mixed race people who find it offensive but there are some generations out there who don't know that they should change how they say it and they don't know that it's wrong um no. and they're just kind of from an era where in that time that phrase and term of how you refer to someone was acceptable they don't know that language has evolved and you say now dual heritage or mixed heritage so it's really, I, I really feel for people because I know how tough it is and I have to challenge myself to kind of make sure I'm keeping up as well. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it is difficult. I mean, it, in terms of, you know, trying to get it right as well, because, you know, there, there are people um, that want to get it right. And it, it's yeah. just because all this stuff has been so ingrained in us. It's true. You know, and it's the way we talk, the way we behave, the way yeah. we 
gestulate about things that you know we're completely unaware that we're being offensive yeah. and that is where that you know I have seen some division mm. you know around this year although there has been a lot of positivity come out of this mm. I think you know the, the the younger generation generation z um really really are not going they're going to be the generation that will stamp out racism completely I'd like to think so um, but I think again it's subject to kind of what they are surrounded by and what representation they see a lot of the time I know it's called into question that um, there's not enough black people in senior positions of power so the decision makers in your kind of FTSE 100 companies you know in your big organizations and you're right stamping out racism in one is one thing but I almost sense that in order to kind of have that pioneering spirit, you need to see people who look like you in those positions of power. In my field and day-to-day -day work, because of what I do in marketing and advertising and PR and media, there is always this thing of, oh, you know, when you see an advert, for example, that has received lots of complaints because it was deemed to be racially offensive, the question that comes up time and time again, who commissioned that advert? Did they get someone involved who was from a black or BAME background? And time and time again, it's no. And it's because the people who are at the top commissioning and creating these adverts have not consulted. They don't realise that what they've created could offend. So therefore, by referring or place, you know, I don't know, using monkeys in an advert, they don't understand that some of the historical offences that come with that. And this is where it's one thing to, to stamp out the racism. I think there's going to need to be an element of representation at higher levels to make sure that those diverse voices are included and are counted and listened to without, you know, I mean, at the moment on TV, I'm really happy because I watch adverts. I'm like, oh, they've used a mixed race couple. You know, there's an eBay advert on at the moment where it's really fun. They're showing a couple who've moved in together and obviously they're ordering all this stuff. And um, they're literally like I'm um, plugging in like or inserting a mirror onto the wall and they're, they're trying to show how you can slot things into your life from eBay. Very good advert. And, you know, it's a white guy and a black girl. What? Because <laughs> I'm talking about it now. So we're seeing that more. And I think it is representative of, dare I say, modern day Britain, where we are seeing that, you know, there are more mixed race relationships. There's more of a kind of dual heritage. You're seeing um, there's a really good John Lewis advert where it's a family where the kids kind of take everything from out of all the rooms and rearrange it to make like a, a theatre performance. And it's a black family. Um, you know, the kids are visibly of mixed heritage or black with curly hair. And you're seeing that more and more. But I think what concerns me is the backlash to those adverts because then you look on social media and then you see people, and especially there's an advert with Argos where they showed like a black family, kind of again, mm -hmm. setting up an evening, like watching films and using obviously merchandise from, from Argos. And I read an article about the backlash that Argos has received by using a black family. Really? Yeah. People who have gone onto social media and have been very vocal to say, this isn't representative of Britain. Why are you using black people? And have questioned why Argos has used black families in their advertising. So to me, even as I say, you've got the kind of side of, okay, sometimes adverts and companies get it wrong. So then when adverts, you know, this advert I think is brilliant. I think you watch it and yeah, they're black, but anyone can... You know, they yeah, could put anyone in really matters, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's a universal experience that shows a family setting up a, a movie night. 
it's a universal experience. The fact that they've chosen to put black people in it is just an aside. It's a universal experience. But the fact that people have taken time to complain, many of them, makes me question how far we've really come. It really yeah, does. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, completely. It really it, makes me question. Yeah. Generation Z can, or Z or Z, however you call them, yeah, they could stamp out racism. But how do you, I don't have the answer, how do you encounter something like that when there are actually people look at loose women last week it was the first time in 20 odd years that you've had a daytime panel of black women primetime tv presenting a high profile show brilliant 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 lots of great praise and support lots of people calling for it to happen again and i think it will i got quite choked up when i watched it because i just looked and went wow it was such a significant representation however there was lots of negative people as well yeah, but I don't see why the, the next step couldn't be. It's a it's a totally mixed panel. I mean, like, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, to be fair. century, for God's sake. I know. I mean, today it was a mixed panel. It was two black and two white. And it's, loose women have been like that for a long time, I will say. But for the first time, it was actually all black. For people to then come out and complain about that. And when I say complain, very nasty language that's used as part of that complaint. It's not just saying... ITV these women, why did you choose to put four black women? Ask the question by all means. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but it was there's been some very nasty kickback about that choice. And I applaud ITV for doing it, but I wonder how they're gonna take that and what they're gonna do with it next. Will it put them off? Will they do it again? I don't know. Will it be? I'm hoping it'll be done again and not just on Black History Month, but outside of that. But I look at that and I think, wow, we really haven't come that far if there's going to be some very nasty kickback because of doing something like that. Let's just for a moment talk about this kickback and talk about the reasons, I mean, you know, mental health and psychology and all that type of thing. I mean, would would you say that it, it's basically because that people just aren't educated and they're frightened of something that just isn't there? Um, so based on the comments I saw, for example, about the loose women situation or about the advert with Argos and, and um, other kind of big campaigns that feature black people, the kind of comments I saw were things like, oh, why do they have to have their own special advert? Um, this isn't representative of England right now, showing all black people. Um, it's been a real kind of, it's almost like they don't, appreciate that as black people we are part of society and as community as the uk we are one of the most diverse countries in the whole of the world i mean i know know. and many moons ago when i worked for the bbc there was um i did a report about the office of national statistics that said the biggest emerging ethnic group was mixed race people in the uk um, and you know you can only and you only have to go into high street shops to see how they have actually I suppose addressed that because you have your super drug and your boots and your, and your high street kind of big um, supermarket selling hair care and skincare products for black and mixed race skin so they are doing that based on they know there is a need and there is a big need for those products to be sold yeah. however yeah. yeah I think People are kicking back on it because they're questioning why we're being given special treatment. And when I say special treatment, being featured in adverts. Now, here's the thing. 
they're not recognizing that in order for the UK to be seen as a diverse society, that includes black people. But it's almost like it's not, they don't see it, in my opinion, they don't see it's justified, they don't see it's welcomed. They still see that we're separate and we're other. And that's part of the problem that is ingrained in society. And then it then circulates back to the inequalities that as a people we experience where it comes to jobs, education, health, we're seen as other and as inferior, that we can't shop in Argos, for example, we can't be featured on an advert. And I think it's a lack of education. It comes down to a lack of, I suppose, what people are exposed to in terms of their society. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it just comes back to the fact that they just don't want to see a black face on TV. They just don't want to see it. And I can't answer for those people and why that's the case. They might have some personal um, issues about that. They may feel that there's something that they've been through that makes their perspectives justified. All I can say from my perspective is that I have encountered racism. I've been spat out on the, on the streets. I have encountered various situations where I would say white people have treated me unfairly, but I do not see that as a blanket approach. I still treat all people the same with respect. I'm polite, I'm courteous. Just because a few people have, may have treated me badly in the past doesn't mean it's everyone but not everyone has that same open-minded opinion. So then if they have something deep rooted in them, which they hate about black people and then see it on the TV, they will then kick back. And in the world of social media, they will then take to Twitter or Facebook and express their displeasure. Yeah, I mean, it is a shame, isn't it? That there are, um, to put a finer point on it, idiots in the world, you know? <laughs> But you know what, again, what fills my heart with joy is when I see these comments and there are people of all races going back and saying, why are you saying that? You're wrong or actually challenging these comments and saying, so, you know, as much, and let's be honest, we live in a democracy. People have their opinion. I may not agree with it, but they can say their opinion and how they feel. But what is brilliant is to see people going back and saying, oh, don't shut up. You can't say that or leave them alone. It's just an advert or oh, you know, so what, you're going to boycott Argos? Oh, I bet they'll miss your money type thing. <laughs> you're in the, that kind of thing of, you're not quiet down, your opinion's not really that important. What impact it will have on those opinions, I don't know. But to see that kind of dialogue and to see that people are being challenged back and people are pushing back and saying, actually, your perspectives on diversity are really not nice. Um, <laughs> it may, it, you know, it makes me feel like, okay, they are in the minority, but however, it's there. It's there. It's there. It's still there. Yeah. No. No. I I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, it it is. And as you said, we need to keep opening dialogues where we can actively speak about it. You know. I mean, the the difference is is the color of our skin. That that's it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the difference is is that when I go on a holiday, I probably tan a bit quicker than you. So what? <laughs> You know, it, that, that's pretty much it. And okay, along with that comes some different cultural um, understandings, I suppose, you know, um, in terms of, you know, from the food I eat, the way I maybe dress or, you know, the music yeah. I listen to, but that doesn't make me any better yeah. than anyone else. 
I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. But, you know, I mean, I've been brought up, I mean, I'm a Londoner, for goodness sake. So like you, being brought up in Reading, it's, mm. you know, I've been used to a multicultural society since I was born. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've grown up, you know, going to Notting Hill Carnival, trying different foods, you know, I mean, I couldn't tell you what the food from my country is at all. You know, everything from, you know, curry to fish and chips. I don't know. It's true. It's, true. You know, and it's, it's quite funny. It's quite funny though, isn't it? For people who kind of complain about adverts and the representation of BAME people on adverts, um, I, I would hazard a guess that these are the same people who eat curry, who eat Chinese. You know, you can't take culture in one hand and then drop it with the other. You can't say, and you know, in my opinion, you can't kind of be so hostile and confrontational about different cultures, but yet take the bits that you like and drop the others. Like, well, do you know that's a really interesting fact, and I, I, I bet you know this already. But when the coronavirus first kind of, you know, hit, went through us all every country people stopped using Chinese restaurants they stopped using Chinese I know takeaways. yeah I mean, how ludicrous is that I know I know I mean I suppose you know for what we know factually the virus did originate from from Wuhan in China um however the fact that that was the case doesn't mean that our Chinese takeaway has a direct link to Wuhan in China it doesn't mean that but I think in times of fear, this is what we come down to, Ali, I think. A lot of the time, the prejudice... The delivery would be too long, though. It's there, pardon? I said the delivery would be too long. <laughs> it's true. It'll be cold by the time you get your noodles from the road. They would eat cold, cold food. But, yeah, I think it's fear. Um, and that's a lot of the thing. If you have grown up in a community in a neighbourhood where you don't know a lot of people who are Black or Chinese or of Indian descent, it's fear. When I went to uni and I lived in halls of residence in my first year, and, you know, a girl I lived with said that her dad didn't like black people. Um, and I might sat, and this was like within hours of her moving in. And I remember laughing, I went, oh, funny that you're going to be living with one then. What's he going to say? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to, I live, I pay my rent like you. I will not be leaving. If you want to leave, it's up to you, but I'm staying put. And when he comes, I will speak to him the same way that I speak to the other parents who arrive at the house. Yeah. But, you know, and it's that kind of thing. You can't kind of, and, you know, in the end, we became great friends, but she came from a village where she actually, at the time, early noughties, said to me she'd never met a black person. Wow. Never met one. Wow. And when, I, when I then move in, she's like, oh, you're black. And I'm like, am I? Didn't know that. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> and? And as I say, but I, when I looked at her and spoke to her more, I started to understand okay a lot of what she was saying was offensive but she had no idea because she'd never lived outside of a world or a community or society mm. but it was important to be diverse she never saw it she never so she literally said what she saw which was oh you're black because she'd never encountered it now she's very lucky that i'm not aggressive because to me i would laugh a lot of stuff off but also explain and talk to her and as i said we became great friends but equally it was just like wow yeah <laughs> wow where do you come from then yeah yeah, yeah I get that a lot where, where are you from, from where, where are you really from <laughs> where are you really from Reading Berkshire because I know what people are getting at but rather than just say oh um 
were you born in the you know there's different ways of phrasing it but again it's the intention and I know that a lot of the time people don't know how to ask so they kind of blurt it out and go oh gosh sorry I I didn't don't want to offend and you know but again it's keeping the dialogue open it is keeping the dialogue open and and as you said that is fine to do that you know it is fine to, to to you know when you have any relationship in life it it's you know about finding the boundaries with each other you know for instance i i might not like it if you keep saying oh ali you really have got big ears (laughs) (laughs) but again to me that's not something i would no yeah 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 you know what i mean or Mm. oh oh, no i don't think you should wear those earrings because you know Mm. (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's just that type of thing you know about you know communicating and coming together as people Mm. and that that is the basic fundamental of of progressing with this situation isn't it Absolutely. I mean, I've written an article in recent weeks called um, Race, It's Everyone's Business. And it's kind of taken a look um, at kind of from my perspective of, you know, working in various environments, running my own business, operating within certain spaces and the observations you make and, you know, why as, I, as the title of it says, that, that race is everybody's business. It's, it's not just a case of me talking about it. It's something for all people to kind of be aware. And when I say that, it's on different levels. I don't expect to see every single person out with a placard for Black Lives Matter. But, you know, um, what I think I found quite interesting during the summer when we lost George Floyd in the way we did, certain people reached out to me, some that I know fairly well, some that I don't know that well. Yeah. But they reached out to me on social media and said, look, I want to learn more or I kind of want to challenge myself or I want to read up on this. Where do I go? What do I do? I know I can ask you. Can you put me in the right direction? And I think something like that has been really important. And I've never had that before. I have never had that before in all my years where people looked at a situation that was going on in the world that was unfair and was full of discrimination and racial hatred and actually turned to me and said, oh, what's it like for you or is it like that here or what shall I read or how can what can I do and I've never had that before and that's why this year has been really significant and you know I hope those conversations continue and that's why I wrote that article that races everyone's business because those conversations really um, moved me and made me think actually I am going to keep this conversation going and not just make it about black versus white but actually it's a collective thing that we all need to be aware of. And where can we find this article, Lee? Good question. Um, I actually wrote it for a website that is um, a media and PR website. So you, if you look at the website PR Fest, it's um, one of their blogs. I'm one of their guest bloggers. And um, yeah, you can Google search PR Fest, Louise Chandler and race is everyone's business and it should come up. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of, from my perspective, as I said, I give... I think like four or five lessons or observations that I've learned, which is about, you know, respecting everyone in the room um, as a person of black descent, you know, not being afraid to speak up and challenge. I also in the article talk about um, the importance of celebrating achievements Mm. and, you know, not letting them fly, not letting them kind of slide by and being really vocal about the great things that you can do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> so anyone listening to this or watching, then do, you know, go and look at this article because I tell you what, this lady can really, really show us all what diversity is about and embrace it. Embrace so. it. Yeah, it. you know, we're all different, you know. Is it we just are as people, aren't we? Mm, I mean absolutely. There, there's one question though that I do want to sort of ask. How do you see the UK versus I mean not not that you can really put them on a complete comparable, but that to, to the US. I mean is the situation worse out there? It does look like it's worse across the pond, but... So when you say worse, I suppose the main things that you can compare is kind of like the authorities and police brutality. And, you know, that there's literally, I suppose, a case for comparing, you know, um, the numbers of... I've watched documentaries and read about, you know, the numbers. I, I wouldn't quote them because I don't want to get them wrong, but the numbers of, of those who are killed in I suppose in the hands of the police um some names are more prominent than others so you've got the Brianna Taylor um scenario um there was a guy called I want to get his name right I'm going to say Aubrey Aubrey I'm sorry if I've got it wrong but he was running um in a neighborhood and got shot and it was filmed um by two white men who I think have got an allegiance with white supremacist groups so it's really difficult to compare, Ali, because I think one thing that I read uh, from a social commentator is that here in the UK, we have a kind of systemic racism and we have the outward racism. Um, in America, there's other elements to it, such as class as well. Right. So right. it's very difficult to compare because we have very different setups. So for example, here we've got the NHS, we can all hopefully get a decent level of care. Yeah. In America, as you know, it's all about kind of insurance and if you can afford health insurance. And I think it's fair to say that the black population over there sometimes can't because of their work and what they do. So it's a really complex thing to try and compare because it's over different layers of society. As I said, police brutality um, in terms of work life, class. And it's so difficult to know. Um, what I would say is that I don't think it's a case of saying, are we better than them? Because I think over in the UK, as a British black woman, I feel like there are certain battles that we have to still acknowledge and fight, be it in terms of the pay, the equality pay gap, be it in terms of promotion to certain roles. Um, you know, it could be in terms of, you know, I read a whole article around, for example, as black women, we are more likely to suffer from poor maternal care yeah let's not forget we're in the middle of a pandemic it's many times been referred to that people of BAME background are dying from the the infection more than other elements of society the last report I read on that last week was saying it's based on um the jobs that we do maybe and where we live but that's not concrete evidence yet there's so yeah. much there is so much so I think Whereas our dear friends in America are just over the pond and we can look at what they're going through. And I wouldn't want to say that what we're going through is less, yeah. is better yeah. or worse. It's just different based on our society and our kind of 
systems that we have in place. We make no mistake about it. There are cases where black people in the UK have died in police custody. Yes, I know yes. of some in Berkshire. There's some cases that haven't fully been resolved. Um, there's a lady called Joy Gardner. I listened to a radio documentary of her son talking about how the police burst in, shot his mum. She was then um, disabled, couldn't walk, was her quality of life suffered until she passed away. And it's only in the last few years that he's been able to bring someone to justice for that. There, it, it, it happens here. It's mm. yeah. just on a different scale. So yeah, it's really complex. Yes, no, I understand that. I mean, I know um, with the sad death of George Floyd um, and the exposure that, you know, that received, there was a lot of people around us in the UK, you know, because at the time, as you know, I was working in, in news, um, saying, oh, well, you know, it, we're, we're a lot better here in the UK than we are in America. You know, that doesn't go on so much here. And it kind of struck me that that, that was kind of ignorant in a way. Um, I guess it depends what your subject to and what news you hear. If you watch the six o'clock bulletin or 10 p.m. bulletin every day, you may not hear these stories. So it's easy to say that. And ignorance is bliss, isn't it? If you don't hear those stories and you're not part of that community, or it doesn't, let's be honest, it doesn't affect you or your loved ones, then you wouldn't know. And I understand that. But, you know, I have a 16-year-old nephew who um, is stopped a few times, has been stopped a few times, him and his friends by the police, you know, they're young black kids um, hanging around, having a chat on the street, playing football or whatever, they will get stopped. You know, I worry more for him than I do for my friends who have got kids of the same age who are white, because you don't know what, and okay, do I feel like he will be subjected to the same kind of police brutality in America? No, I hope not. Do I feel there could be brute force or there could be ways that the law here may operate that could, I suppose, intimidate him. Yeah, I do feel that. You know, Dawn Butler got stopped and she videoed being stopped by the police, her and her friend. Yeah. Um, they were yeah. accused of driving in a certain way that was erratic. You know, there's an investigation into that. There's an um, athlete who was stopped, her, her partner and her child were in the car and how they were treated. Um, it doesn't always have to end in a death like George Floyd for it to be questioned and for people to go, well, hang on a minute. Why was that? But it's, if it makes it to the headlines and if it's a high profile case, it's happening. Those stops and searches, those kind of um, sus laws, as it used to be called, those kind of um, assumptions about why justices. a black person I mean, drives they're a black injustices, car. Aren't they? Pardon? They're injustices, aren't they? You know, it's injustice. It's how you document it. I've got a very good friend who drives a very lovely Range Rover. I keep saying I'm going to nick it, and um, <laughs> he went to he went to buy it, and um, he saved for it. He he knew he wanted this car for a long time, and the question he was asked was what do you do for a living you're a drug dealer because he's black that's terrible he isn't a drug dealer he's a very he has a very high profile very good job yeah. you know he they made his life very difficult to get that car that is awful that's really we're awful. in 2020 we're in 2020 that kind of and for someone to feel that they have the right to say that to someone who is coming to purchase a car. They made, it's a very long story, but for him to purchase that car, they made his life very uncomfortable for no other reason than he's black. That's ridiculous. And he did get the car, didn't he? He got the car, yeah. but I think he, um, it, it, 
put it this way, we had a conversation recently where he's due to go back to the garage and he's dreading it because he's like, oh, will we go again? And this is, I go back to my earlier comment where we talk about, you know, why people sometimes don't speak up. That's why. If you just want to buy a car that you've saved your money and you really want that car, should you have to encounter that? No. It's tiring. It's exhausting to have to justify what you do for a living to afford that car. Just, just sort of briefly, um, I think it, it's a kind of important point to get across that, yes, there are lots of people in authority and police officers and whatever who have been, like, you know, like the George Floyd incident. But there are also a lot of really good police officers, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, not everyone's the same. You can't, you know, paint everyone with the same brush and say, actually, everyone's, you know, bad and racist. And no, I, I don't. I think there are some some good people there. Um, but I think it's this it's a system. And what concerns me is when um one of the key leading people, if not the key leading person in the Metropolitan Police, Chris, Cressida Dick, has come out and said that, you know, she didn't expect her police officers to take a knee and she doesn't think that there's racism oh, that's very disappointing yeah it's I don't believe that everyone is bad I really don't because if they were why are there people on social media challenging the discrimination challenging the prejudice there is it and there, you know there are some really key you only have to look at the Black Lives Matters rallies and protests and people who were there at the front really really pushing and really challenging not everyone's bad police authorities key stakeholders um but there are still conversations to be had at those levels to yeah. say there's evidence or there's concerns or there's some real challenges to say that there are still some embedded behaviors and beliefs that are discriminatory and they are and they are prejudice and they are microaggressions and stereotypes and, you know, just because a black person drives a certain car doesn't mean it's stolen. Um, I've been stopped before and it was hilarious. I didn't even drive and got in a nice car. And I was a bit like, <laughs> I need to check your details. Check what? Like, I've always paid my car tax. What else is there to say? Like, where are you coming from? I remember at the time I was driving from Gatwick Airport and I said to the police officer, do you want to look in the back? And she glanced at the back of the suitcase. I've just left Gatwick. Where do you think I've come from? <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous question when you're like two minutes drive from an airport I've just come back from holiday yeah <laughs> are we having this conversation like you know it, it's crazy but hey we we live in a very um very fragile world but with that comes a lot of good news a lot of positivity a lot of love a lot of kindness compassion and empathy um and a lot of brilliant stuff you know I'm an optimist I truly believe that but I think we also can't shy away from the challenges as well. No, no, you're right. We can't. We can't. And, uh, you know, it's so good to have this conversation with you because, you know, people need to keep having these conversations. Mm, well, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. So, yeah, no, it's good to, good to chat. Well, thank you for coming on Tea Time.